this podcast, at least for the time being, is to do a recorded version of the concept you might know from Downbeat Magazine's Blindfold Test and The Wire Magazine's Invisible Jukebox. To play tunes for musicians without telling them what they're about to hear and see what they have to say. What follows is a conversation that I had with Fred Lonberg Holm on July 3rd, 2015, in his living room in Ukrainian Village, Chicago. Fred's a cello player who plays with many people in many contexts and has been doing so for three decades. I won't read a list of people he's collaborated with and studied under since he describes many of these relationships in the following interview and at the Now Is podcast, we aim to avoid both redundancy and spoilers. His creative breadth can be heard in the distance between the intro and outro music that I chose for this episode. The spry waltz that you just heard was a 2010 track by Saval, a quintet in which Fred gets a handful of the best improvisers in Sweden to form something resembling a pop band. The harrowing solo cello piece you'll hear at the end of this interview is from a 7-inch he released in 1990, which he describes in our conversation as his entree into a certain New York punk band, but uh, yeah, no spoilers. One more thing I'll say about Fred. In the two years that I've lived in Chicago, I've gotten used to seeing him out at shows, even when he's not playing. He's an eclectic player, an open listener, and a very nice dude, too. You can find the Now Is podcast in the iTunes store. Perhaps you already have. You can also stream it at nowis.org, N-O-W hyphen I-S dot O-R-G, where you'll also find information about all the tracks that I played for Fred. To find out more about Fred's recordings, upcoming shows, and that sort of thing, check out his artist Facebook page, facebook.com slash L-O-N-B-E-R-G-H-O-L-M dot info. Fred is also the artist in residence this summer at Elastic Arts in Chicago, where he'll be playing in a different configuration every Tuesday in July and August. 
If you're listening to this while it's still the summer of 2015, check out elasticarts.org for details. Okay, Fred Lomberg home. I, I don't know the piece. I'll tell you that right away. Yeah, You're not yeah, like, yeah. oh, I know this piece. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's for contemporary classical music, which is minimalist music, which yeah, is pretty yeah. much what I assume it's not pygmies that happen to sound like this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's guess. funny, though. It's a weird... It's a weird... Uh, it reminds me of a whole lot of different people, but none of them... Not, I wouldn't say it was any of them. You know, it's like if... if like here's Romania. Oh, maybe if... You know, Morton Feldman and Steve Reich had a had a bastard child that yeah, yeah, yeah. that Harry Parch raised or something. Right, you know, right, right. with a little bit of uh, Arnold Dreyblatt thrown uh-huh, in uh-huh, for uh-huh. for the overtones. He would he was the babysitter. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was like, let me teach you about overtones, children. Um, but I, well, but it's conventional instruments. Yeah, well, it's, yeah. I yeah, think it's, it's. I don't think it's a string quartet, but it's like, or it is. It is a string quartet. String quartet. Well, the cello. It's hard to hear on this recording. I don't really hear right now, cello, in the grand sense. But of yeah. course, you can play high on the cello. It, it and could also not. The cello could conceivably not be playing. Could right be now, not. I'm not right. sure. So anyway, but it. it, it and I. It doesn't sound like the Arditi, but. It's probably not the Cronus, but it might be. If I had to, if I had to pick one of the two of them, I'd say Cronus over Arditi, but I don't think it's them either. I, I don't I, I don't know who the band is. So, yeah, and so I, the, I'll give, you want to tell you anything? Sure. The band, well, the, the, the quartet is the Flux Quartet. Well, I don't know anything about other than I'm this. Do. Yeah, uh, it's not a new recording. It's like a few decades old. Flux Quartet. But uh, Who was in that? I Anybody? Don't, um, nobody. I actually don't have the names in front of me, but... Uh, um, it's not. Nobody, it's not, nobody's it's, it's name not related to Fluxus people. No, so. no, I don't think so. No, 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 nobody that I know I'd ever heard of. But um, you want me to tell you who it is? The piece, which is really sure, the, sure. Main, the main sure. idea. It's Feldman. Yeah. Well, that's weird because it's so much. The, a problem with Feldman. Yeah, that's weird. Is that people play his music too fast a uh-huh. lot of times, and this sounds like a very fast. Uh, unfortunately fast performance of the piece and then I don't know I mean I think there is a piece called like string quartet you know it is is the second quartet yeah it's the one that's like well ironically you're saying it's too fast it's like six hours long this recording (laughs) is well this is just one track from it this is like the actual whole version if they performed it or six pages 42 through 46 if they (laughs) yeah yeah okay I see Uh, but you know but still it was like the first thing I was like, "Oh, it's Feldman," but it's really fast. Yeah. And then I was like, "Nah, it's not Feldman." Even Maybe even they if wanted, they were playing it too fast, they but. wanted to get it done in only five and a half hours. <laughs> six well, you something. think that that's funny, but that's uh, yeah. that's happened. Yeah. You know the John LaBarbera version of the recording of uh, of Three Voices. Okay. Do you know this? Right uh, I don't. I saw her sing. I a Feldman piece. I think it was what it was. I don't. I don't know the recording. Stereo pair. You know when her and the other voices are um, are heard too on um, recording. Yeah. And who'd have thought that? Who'd have thought that snow fell? Who'd, who'd have? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was fell. the piece I saw. Yeah, for sure. Right. Well, the recorded version that she released in the late '80s after Feldman was dead was uh, about 60 minutes long. I saw her do it 
sitting next to Feldman uh, in um, the mid '80s uh, at the New York premiere or debut yeah, or whatever, yeah. and uh, and um, and in that performance, it took 90 minutes. Yeah. And she decided to go back and re-record the thing faster, A, so she could fit it all on the CD, and right. B, so that she would still have time. And she told me this. I mean, she told this to a group of people. It wasn't just me personally. Yeah. She came to Mills to be asked, you know, about re-recording it so much faster. And she said, well, she wanted to have time on the program to also do another piece or two. Right. Right. <laughs> anyway, right. but I sat next to him with, with him, and he never for a moment said, oh, why is she taking it so slow? He loved that version. Uh-huh. And to uh-huh. me, the, the, the version on the record is, just feels unpleasantly fast. Hmm. And, and there was another thing he told me once, you know, when, you know, advice to young composers kind of thing. This is, you know, he said, you know, when you get a commission, always write more than they ask for. So if they, if they ask for 15 minutes, give them 20. If they ask for half an hour, give them 45. If they ask for an hour, give them an hour and a half. What's the logic of that? So, well, yeah, just take advantage of the opportunity to have your music performed and write as much music as you can when you get right. the, when you know you have a gig for your music. Right, you know? right, right. Give them more than they ask for and you'll at least get to yeah. hear more of what you wrote and learn more from it. Right. But she said in this public thing, she said, well, you know, I had asked him for an hour-long piece. And, so, if you're and I knew this backstory that she didn't know. But anyway, so the point is that I, I don't know what if this is correct or not, but to me it feels really pushed, which yeah. is the, the first person that came to mind was Feldman, and then the second thing in my mind was, yeah, but it's some kid who likes Feldman, but it's more in tune with the higher beat per minute concept. Right, right, right. It ruins it to me, like the sort of the scale. You know, I felt, felt so much about scale, mm-hmm. and not not music scale, but you know, yeah, proportional yeah. scale, and it feels like it's just jump, 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 and I don't feel a logical progression of these different images. Mm-hmm. Each mm-hmm. one of these, every time there's a juxtaposition, I can almost guarantee you it's a new sheet of music, it's a new page, right. a new verticality, and he selected a new pitch set and then a new rhythmic logic, mm-hmm. and you know, I have this piece on vinyl. Yeah. And it's, yeah. Okay. Anyway, yeah. It, it's much slower. It's better? I, I... Anyway, I don't know if it's better. No, the recording I have, I haven't listened to in years and years, but I remember that the pressing was really bad and you got so much surface noise and oh, hits yeah, and pops, it was yeah. really hard that's, to... That doesn't work for this. Yeah. Feldman really was for the digital era in yeah, terms yeah, of... Yeah. Um, this piece is actually also released. You can buy it on CD. You can also buy a DVD of it so you can play it without stopping. <laughs> Right. Which is kind of funny. Oh, here's a here's a like another minimalist great story. Lamont Young uh, yeah. encouraged me when the well tuned piano got released. Yeah. He said, he said you should buy the cassette version. <laughs> and I was like, well, why? Well, because there's fewer interruptions. Yeah. <laughs> it was the LP. I don't know. It's seven, but there's only like five cassettes. Or oh yeah, 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 so, yeah, that's really So funny. it's better. You get more so duration. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if you have one of those machines that flips over the tape, <laughs> yeah, it's even better, better yeah, right? Yeah, so yeah. I don't know. This is you know because this came out before. If there were CDs at all, it was like there were five CDs in the world or something, you know, right, and that got right, released. Right. And, and for and I often thought, man, what if I had bought Well Tuned Piano as a box set of cassettes <laughs> that you could probably. Jeez. The new cassette boom, you could probably flip that for quite a bit. Right? Maybe right now, Maybe but right for a now. while it was like, man, you know, the vinyl always held some value, but yeah, yeah, I yeah, think, yeah. anyway, blah. The, so, the anyway, ne- so I failed ask, number one. No, 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 you got a lot to say. Well, the, the 60, 90 minute adding more thing actually makes me think something I was wondering about Feldman, so I'm curious, since you spent some time with him, if you have any thoughts about this, which is that often his pieces feel like, like a random selection of different units 
um, you know, of, of sound. Um, that I mean, you have already a vocabulary for that I don't have about what you said, verticalities and stuff. But yeah. like, I'm not sure. It's I mean, I like this about them. I'm not sure like they feel like a linear sort of march through different sections and it sort of makes sense that you'd be like oh this is done hey i could just add on 30 more minutes you know because it doesn't have the sort of oh, yeah. narrative arc of like a whatever page no right something. well think of it more like a curator and, um in a art museum mm-hmm. with a large collection of paintings sure. by one artist let's say you know that sort of the juxtaposition when they choose which paintings they're going to put in what sequence on the wall that's a thoughtful hopefully right. a thoughtful process sure and so while he's not necessarily a lot of times he does write linearly and that he doesn't say after he's done i've got all these pages of music let me see what order yeah although he encouraged me to think about that with a piece i was writing at one point was to really think about the very last thing from each of these images and the first thing with the other images and not even think about what's going on internally but what and, and Bunny also, Benito Marcus, might have actually influenced him about thinking that way. I don't know which, who, what, but, uh, but, um, but she also was thinking a lot about how you organize preset images. And I know that he thought of the, these individual events as sort of their own images, and then it's a question of what comes next. But he also, I know, would write um, page after page and then have a page, and he said, this is the beginning now. And all the other uh-huh, pages that uh-huh. I wrote before, I'm throwing away, and now I'm starting, and now I'm really writing the piece. Right, right, right. And he also visualized or, or conceived of most of the work that he did in the last 20 or 30 years as being um, one giant piece. Uh-huh, okay, okay. Yeah, that makes... <laughs> the instrumentation changes, the focus changes and everything, but really it's one continuous diary of an exploration of sound. Right, that makes a lot of sense yeah. to me. Okay, I mean, I would believe you over me, but that opening gesture reminds me a lot of a piece of his I haven't heard in a long time. But the... yeah. I mean, the same. Yeah. So, the reasonable guess. But... Yeah, I mean, I've, yeah, I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't feel like a Roscoe thing or an art ensemble thing. It doesn't feel like a Braxton thing to me. I don't know. Maybe it is, um, but doesn't strive but not, doesn't the horn player doesn't sound like him either. What do you say it doesn't sound like any of those people? Just Just somehow, I mean just the, the language, the vocabulary doesn't make me think Braxton, but I mean Braxton can do a lot of different things, so uh, you know. But also just the horn playing, it could be him again, but it doesn't I, I doesn't feel like his sound i don't know i we could go on like a long list of people that i don't think it is yeah, i try to sure. think about more who it might be well you don't have to just guess what do you uh, have any uh i like i like uh, I, I like i i i like this nice <laughs> what do you like about it? 
I don't know. I, I like the... Yeah, I like it. It's a nice set of... Uh, nice, uh, nice set of frequencies. And uh, I like this uh, percussionist. Uh, who is probably being left to just do uh, with certain kind of guidance uh, whatever seems right to him as opposed to everyone else which is playing this unison uh, um, line that's a nice sequence of sounds 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 it's not, it's not, you know, I, one, one guy, like, I, I don't think I have, my dad had some, but I don't think I even own any Ornette records. Really? <laughs> Is this Ornette? No, no, no. Oh, okay. It reminds me, I actually, the, the kind of, like, slowly developed loping melody yeah. reminds me of Ornette. Yeah. For sure. But. Yeah. That's why it could easily be some Ornette thing that I, I really, I, I yeah. confess right now, it's just like, just somehow, yeah, yeah, you know, true. I loved his violin playing whenever I heard it, and I would check it out a lot on YouTube, but yeah, I don't yeah, have yeah. any records. That's fine. And my dad had a record of him playing violin when I was a kid that I thought was, wow, yeah. <laughs> but, but a lot of the jazz saxophone stuff just, you know, it was, it was good, but yeah, yeah, that's just funny. somehow, for some, a lot of my closest friends are huge fans, yeah, and yeah, they can't even understand why I yeah. never got that. But That's interesting. I would not have wow. expected that. Yeah, it's Braxton. It is Braxton. Yeah. But, all right, yeah, you know, it's odd, though, because... He's playing so much more uh... now. Now, yeah, okay. But that opening thing, which record is this? This is what is this called? Uh, it's called Opus Twenty Three E. I mean, I don't know. But what record is it from? Do you know? Um, a, a record from seventy five. I don't have. I had it. The um, that box set, the mosaic yeah. box set of like stuff okay. in that period. Right. I don't know what. That's all right. Is on. But you know. Um, I mean, when he starts playing like this, it's like, that's Braxton, you know, there's yeah, no yeah. doubt about it. But that opening thing, he's being so, it's not even that he's playing a, a nice line of pitches, but he's playing it so kind of sweetly. And like, usually I hear like a, I hear an overtone always of edge yeah. that I wasn't really hearing in that. Right, that right, was the right. main reason. I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's why I was like, maybe it was McPhee or something, you know? Right, right, right. You know, who in those days especially would play a lot more kind of sweet to my ears at sure, least. Sure, sure, sure. Braxton was already at that point a master of uh, the edge and the angularity and the, the, you know. But yeah, I don't know this record, but it, it yeah. kind of, yeah, it's... Yeah, it sounded nice. Yeah. Sometimes I'm not really convinced by Braxton's pitch choices either. Really? In this, yeah. I mean, sure. I'm, I, you know, sometimes, sometimes. Yeah, sometimes. But this one was like, yeah, that's that's really. Pitch choices in improvising or in composing? No, in composing. Uh -huh. Like his, you know, because I don't think he's even necessarily always that interested in, you know, because there's all these other uh, logic. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, Tricentric. Uh... Yeah, but also, I mean, just sort of choosing pitches. It's he was pretty influenced. Even in the 70s, by uh, Stockhausen, Schoenberg, and serialism, and he wasn't—he was never a serialist, but he all, often seems to impose kind of a system, systematic procedure for selecting pitches rather than than a more intuitive one. Right, right. And right. that can sometimes lead in really great places where it's like, wow, that is so beautiful. And then sometimes it's like, that just seems like telephone numbers converted into pitches yeah, or something, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know what I mean? And you're just no, like, yeah, okay, that's nice, that's good, but, you know, but yeah. that, that, that was uh, lovely. 
Right, oh, right. Lovely. No, that melody is. It was very sweet. Lovely. So you and 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 okay. So you. I mean, obviously, I'm starting here with. People I understand yeah, I that guess, you studied yeah, yeah. with at some point. I should have guessed it was me, Braxton, since he did Feldman first. Yeah, 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 yeah. Did, and, and you did study with him, or you just like hung out with him, or what was the... No, I, I uh, for two years, uh, uh, took courses, had private lessons, improvised okay. with, uh, played in his uh, school ensemble, played outside of the school with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, yeah. Yeah, you know, I mean, I was his, uh, I was uh, my fellowship the second year included being his uh, assistant. So this I, is Mills? Yeah. yeah. So I did errands for him, and I yeah. copied things, and I rewrote letters to people, and I, uh, <laughs> well, you know, whatever. Yeah, you know. yeah, yeah, whatever, indeed. So did, and when you're talking about that compositional um, sort of uh, quasi-serialist systematic approach, was that something that you talked about at the time? Was that something he tried to impart on you and that you resisted, or...? I wasn't there to resist anything. Um, but no, it was more that, yeah, he would talk about how he was, you know, about pitch logic. Mm-hmm. He was working on a piece one day, I bumped into him at the hamburger shop on campus. <laughs> yeah. How you doing? Oh, I'm great. Yeah, I just yeah, yeah. finished the, the rhythmic uh, um, logic or the, the rhythmic sequences for composition number, you know, whatever it was, 128. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, yeah. now I'm going to go back and apply the pitch logic, <laughs> you know? And to me at the time, it was like, I... That sounds crazy to me. No, no, it, it didn't sound crazy at all, but it was just like, I just don't do that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah. But no, 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 I, I grew up exposed to uh, to chance, aleatoric, and serialist procedures, and I swear to God, when I was 11, maybe I was 12, yeah, I took a jazz composition class, and I had to write a piece ahead, and I really didn't know how to go about it except for then I decided that I would put a bunch of chords that I liked in a hat yeah. and then pull them out one at a time and that would be my chord changes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah you know, yeah. And, that's, and, a very, that's also a very 12-year-old idea, chords that I like. Right, exactly. And C9 is so good. Yeah. But that's Cage, too. Yeah. You know, he sounds that he liked and yeah. then he would choose them using the I Ching. So I didn't yeah. have the I Ching, but I had, but I had already developed this idea that it was okay to just have things you like and then randomly select them and put them in a sequence that was randomly generated and then try to function with it. Right. You know, and so, so, and not to say that Bryson was doing this randomly, but I'm just saying that sort of the idea of, of giving up choices about what's going to happen, you know, creating a system and then following the system was not like, what the hell, that's crazy talk, yeah, as yeah, much yeah. as it was more just like, almost not vestigial, but a little bit like, yeah, I, I just kind of not into that anymore, you know, because, you know, the weird thing was having sort of, you know, I didn't formally study with Feldman, but I had some lessons with him, and I hung out with him a lot, and I studied a lot with Benita Marcus, who was a close colleague of his, and student of his, and disciple, you could say, and, uh, um, and so leaving that world, and then going to Braxton's world, were two entirely different ways of thinking about music and sound. Because More so than going from like Feldman to Pauline Oliveris or something right. even, you know, right. which right. is also another planet. But yeah, yeah. Feldman was three planets, I mean, uh, Bryson was three planets past that or something. Right. And so it was right. good for me to kind of tear up whatever kind of habits I was developing already in one school by having to deal with an entirely different right. school and then ending up afterwards being like, wow, I have to do my own thing, you know. Right, yeah, for sure. Which is what both of them did. Yeah, you know, of course, so. yeah. Well, it's also interesting because Feldman coming 
you know, ostensibly from the world of classical music, Braxton coming more or less from the world of jazz, it seems like a sort of reversal that one would, which one would be working with a rigorous structure would be, you know, like as opposed to being intuitive intuitive versus being really structural. Yeah. That is a kind of reversal. So I can see how it's like, yeah, Yeah, because like Feldman was very, you know, uh, he never told me this, but I know that just in general, there was a whole sort of European lineage and history that backed up his work. You know, right. You know, it wasn't just like that. I'm a white guy who studied in music school. It's more like, yeah, I really, you know, Brahms. Yeah, yeah. Well, he called it. He always called himself the greatest, the greatest Jewish composer. That was that was apparently some line he would say, which is kind of yeah. Hysteric. But that might have been yeah. That's that's more like one of his, his sense of humor. But, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. But anyway, um, but yeah, no, he was really deeply committed to and invested in sort of development of European art music and right. not interested in improvisation at all and not right. interested in jazz really I mean even you know even relative to a lot of his contemporaries in the academic white world he was less interested in jazz than yeah than, that's actually yeah that's anybody, kind of surprising you know, to me but so. I guess he did have a large collection of books about serialism supposedly he was called this is from Benito Marcus that he uh he, um, that they went to Feldman's house after some concert for a party, and then somehow Babbitt ended up in uh, in in this closet where there were all these serial books. And Babbitt's like, "Oh, you're a serial clo- uh, closet serialist." But anyway, um, how did what was he doing in the closet? <laughs> he was looking around the house. Just I don't know. That's a good question. I never asked. Why was Babbitt poking around in his closet? Maybe he wasn't really in the closet. Maybe it was just like a little nook of. Yeah, yeah, yeah books that showed that Feldman had been paying attention to that whole thing even if he wasn't using it in his yeah. own work and I know he was using it or or at least influenced by that as much as anybody but yeah and I should be asking you interview questions too or do you feel like you have any system if you compose stuff I, I you know I have a system for a piece but I don't have a I don't have a larger agenda of this is my system that I'm advocating yeah. I've always been a little bit more um, that whatever underlying logic and connectivity there is from one piece to the next is uh, something that other people will either decide exists or, or say doesn't exist, but that if I worry about it too much, um, then I'll hamstring myself and away from doing what it is that I, sh- what I, how I live and how I see the world when I'm working. You know, a story that influenced me a lot when I was a, a kid was, or, or a realization, and I don't, you know, I'm, I'm not a music historian, so maybe this is even bullshit, but I had heard when I was in, a teenager that, uh, that in the 19th century, 18th century, nobody walked around saying, talking about the Sonata Allegro form. Right, right, <laughs> you know? right. It was later musicologists and music historians looked and said, wow, look at this. All these different guys were writing this music that really followed a particular formal sort of construct. Yeah. It was in the air, it was what it, it was lingua franca, but it wasn't perceived as being yeah. anything. It was just yeah. how we write music. It was common practice. Yeah. You know, and I assume that like there's a lot of common practice in my music, whether if I'm writing a fully notated piece for some group or if I'm writing a, a head for Saval, or if I'm free improvising, or if I'm, you know, what I mean is that, yeah, but that I'm always me. I'm always trying to be me, and I'm always trying to do the best I can in the circumstance that I'm in. And that's my system, and yeah. I'm sticking to it. <laughs>
I don't listen to these records very much. Uh, this is Tom. Oh, and Tom the, and the X. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I don't like those records. Yeah. I, I recognize his. When he started to play, at first I thought it was, uh, what's her name? Um, not uh, Marianne. What's her name? The opera. That woman who does these sort of multimedia opera things in New York, kind of 70s, 80s. Uh, um, I don't know which. Minimalist, uh, cutesy. Marco Polo was a big opera of hers, you know. Uh, well. Um, I'm blanking yeah, right I know now. You're about, um, I could look it up. Well, let's like this. This is like. But when that first long. started, I was like, "Oh, it's like it's like a bad." And I thought maybe some local like kids. Monk, yeah, exactly. Yeah, okay. You know, and and I was like, "Oh, maybe it's some it's a, it's some other band like Lichens, but with a woman." And they kind of really like Meredith Monk too. <laughs> and then Tom started to play, and I'm like, "Oh, well, that's Tom." That's really? And then I, so you reckon that's impressive? I mean, because you, know, you know this record, or because you no, because I know I know Tom really. Yeah. I knew, I mean, I met Tom shortly after I moved to New York, and he became kind of a mentor, big brother, friend, and okay. I used to go to his house and improvise with him, and I saw him play many, many, many times, okay. and I have a lot of records, some of his records I burned through and had to buy new copies, uh, Cargo Cult one, Revival. I no, I, but this period, you know, Tom was, it's cool, it's great, I like the X, okay, they're good people, they're nice people, I, you know. I, I, you know, but I was never a fan, and yeah. and then this particular part, yes, I don't know, but just, yeah, 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 yeah. of Tom Records. I just got this one with Luke X and uh, and uh, Zena Parkins and Michael Batcher and Tom. Yeah, that's really nice. Oh yeah, I like. And this is it. good too. It's it's good. It's it's good. I just didn't. Yeah, yeah, it's not your thing. Why would you? I mean, would you articulate some way that what makes it not your thing? <laughs> I was just over it at that point, I think, also, you yeah, know? Yeah. I don't know. The, I, the, when this came out, this is like 91, I believe. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely late 80s, early 90s. I yeah. wouldn't know which. Yeah, well, the record came out. Is this one scrabbling at the lock? Yeah, that's yeah, the one, yeah. yeah. Yeah, there's two, I think, that they made yeah, together. Yeah, it yeah. was very successful. Really? In, yeah, I mean, relative to stuff. Be Relative to other they, were, they played a ton of festivals and did some really good tours and they okay. toured the U.S. and people loved it. Yeah, okay. You know, and I didn't think it was, I, I definitely, it's not like, it's not like, oh, I hate this, but it was just like. Yeah, you're not, not you're not sold by the songwriting or well, something? Or what? I just, uh, I don't know, I just maybe at the time it wasn't what I was interested in or needed or yeah, where yeah, I was yeah. at in my head. And yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not like the smooth jazz of indie alternative rock avant shit but it's kind of a little bit more in that direction it's pretty huh. kind of Why slick you, and you know and slick in the, i mean it's like you mean like the recording quality or the songwriting or what do you mean the songwriting the recording quality the performances it's just really? it's, it's a little more yummy than what i wanted to hear then you know yummy, maybe i should yeah, go yeah, back yeah. and listen now again and maybe i mean if you don't like do you yeah. like other like some of the it seems to me like a transition from that earlier like like the X is like a, like a sort of whatever the smokers and joggers and, and yeah, anarcho, which is not really like punk, punk yeah, shit. Yeah, uh, to their more kind of like, you know, avant um, guitar scratchy stuff that I associate with later. But of course, this is all no, me just yes, looking, you know, no, they were already they were already doing that. They were already doing that. And they were already working with improvisers and yeah. avant gardists and you know, yeah, the first Dutch. record I heard of theirs was uh, smokers and joggers, and I believe that that's well before. Yeah. 
Sure. I yeah. I mean, I, this is all stuff that I <laughs> I know it's before this, you put together from hearing it in the last 10, 15 years. So I don't. Yeah. Know yeah. Really yeah sure. I understand that well. Anyway, I, I though nothing negative about nobody. Just I I don't own the records and I own a number of Tom Cora records and yeah, I never yeah, yeah. was that excited. Yeah. Chicago band? Yep. It's funny that you played this right after the X. It's, I mean, it was, I thought about it. <laughs> Why do you say it's funny? I, I'm, I'm not 100% sure because I, like, my brain gets muddled and everything, but this is a Flying Lutenbachers. Yep. Early Flying Lutenbachers. Yeah, well, it's just because Ken is playing. It's actually not Ken. It's not I Ken? Mean, this is post-Ken? Because uh, I don't well, know this. I, this is this is a live show in New York at the Knitting Factory in '94. I just, I mean, I. Ken I looked, had already left the band by then. then? Well, he, I know he just might not have been on this tour. I mean, I have no idea what the knowledge right. of it. But according to. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't say like that. Sounds like Ken would. I just know that he played in the band around then, and I heard a saxophone, and yeah, yeah, and yeah, I yeah, thought yeah. it might be him, but uh, but um, well, anyway, that's slightly less funny it's just because nowadays like you know Ken plays a lot with the X and then yeah, so oh, there are yeah, two yeah, yeah. bands back to back that, that are both kind of punk lineage punk heritage whatever with Alan Flair with, with, yeah. with uh, yeah and, and both of them have had Ken in the band at right. different times no, so it's just funny that way but uh, I mean I was also specifically but the only reason I recognized it is because I played this tune but I don't know this recording I definitely don't know this recording I don't know if I even really spent more than a minute listening to the official record version but, right. but, you were but I just recognized Weasel's playing and I recognized the writing and so yeah, on yeah 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 well I specifically picked this because I was just sort of flipping around this is look pretty low audio quality because I actually ripped it from YouTube but it's uh, a live show in, like I said in New York in 94 which would have been like right as you were like about to move from New York to Chicago is my understanding right did you move like 95 is that right yeah yeah exactly yeah. so and then you joined this band or at least played with this band an entirely different concept of this band. Okay. Was it like shortly after you moved? No, no. Um, I met Weasel almost immediately after moving here, but in those days, the version of the Flying Loop Buckets he had was with uh, two, a bass player and a guitar player, and it was very influenced by like death metal. Mm -hmm. And and then he basically the flying loop, he was the flying loop box yes. and he'd reinvent the band every couple of years. Yes. The version I was really in was a free jazz unit. Oh, okay. With Michael Culligan saxophone and uh, Kurt Johnson playing bass and me playing cello and. Okay. Um, but I would say you're absolutely right that when I when I left New York, it was very much like there was the rock scene, then there yeah. was the singer songwriter scene, then there was the the noise scene, there was the jazz scene, there was the improviser scene, that, you know, and they and they almost never really interacted with each other. Yeah. God is my co-pilot was, for whatever flaws they might have had, one thing that they really did do that was exciting and interesting was be a kind of a rock band that reached out to and got a bunch of improvisers to play with them, everybody from Zorn and Sharp down to Fred Lomberholm, you know what I mean? Right, right. Um, and kind of disrespected a boundary that in New York was pretty solid. Right, right. Um, but then when I got here, yeah, it was like everybody, 
it was a small enough scene that you had to kind of look to people who did had different interests than you, but a big enough scene that there was stuff going on all the time. And so people would go to each other's concerts, even, you know, even if it had nothing to do with the kind of music they played, and they would be socially friendly, and then if somebody needed a, you know, a saxophone player for their their space rock band, or right. their, or they, or they would, you know, people were willing to kind of violate what some in some scenes would be, you know, like strict rules about, like I don't do that, right? You know, so so like Ken would play a city sax solo on a Jim O'Rourke solo record, <laughs> right, right, right. You know, I was with Ken the first time he heard the record. And he didn't know what yeah, it was, and then the sax solo started. Right, yeah. and the sax solo started, and Ken was like, "What the hell is that? Who is that?" And this was, uh, Ken, it's you. Oh shit! <laughs> you know, so <laughs> you know. But anyway, so we were all, and and I loved that, you know. And so I especially felt really at home here, that because yeah. I liked a lot of different things, and I liked the idea of not being pigeonholed into one little niche group that my group stays together, and we don't play with those people, and we yeah, don't yeah, do yeah. that kind of thing. And, so, you know, so I could play with, uh, you know, people playing jazz tunes one night and play with, uh, you know, a, a scrunky noise band the next day and then, you know, back up a country, alt-country singer the next day. Right, and, right, right. You know, and uh, and I was somehow given permission in Chicago to do that in a way that New York never would allow for. Right. So, well. So and so, I, I would say you're absolutely right. I mean, I don't know. Dis, I never felt like we're disrespecting anything as much as we were expanding and overlapping and and uh, and growing and developing from each other's experiences. And this is the art ensemble with uh, with uh, Bridget Fontaine. That's right. Yeah. yeah. You were yeah. worried you were gonna get everything wrong. <laughs> well, this record is so fucking weird. Yeah, <laughs> and Leo Smith is on it too, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think that she and Leo were having a thing at the time. That's the rumor. It is to me. Yeah. I don't know. I'm not. Don't quote me. But yeah. Anyway, but uh, yeah, but it's just a really bizarro record. 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 That's really what was so great about that period. Really yeah. Again, maybe almost disrespecting, as you say, boundaries. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. being willing to just try. Yeah. Creative stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it seems like, especially because jazz, the sort of history of jazz is like taking standards and expanding them, to put it in one really short sentence. Yeah. So why not do that with pop songs, too? Right. Incorporating, well, but that's pop songs. Well, it's not just that it's, I mean, pop songs have been a part of jazz from the beginning. Yeah, sure. That's the basic American songbook repertoire yes. Broadway shows, which were hit songs mm -hmm. that then musicians would take the chorus of and, and uh, reharmonize and, uh, yeah. you know, so that's, that's not new, but it was more, but they wouldn't necessarily work with, you know, yeah. uh, Mr. Crooner or yeah, yeah, his yeah. pop uh, Broadway yeah, yeah, star yeah. of the year. You know, yeah, that's yeah, yeah. that was the weirder part somehow. But, right, right, right. But, well, that's why um, I said it reminded yeah. me of what you were just saying about sitting in on somebody in the right. 90s just in Chicago, just like, yeah, you need somebody to play cello, presumably on your yeah. whatever gig. Yeah. Or yeah. record or whatever. Yeah, man, sure, I'll do it. If yeah. I got time, if you're paying, that's even better. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I've also, I mean, another reason I thought to play this was because I've been um, 
listening to that Saval record a bunch, just the first yeah. one's on my head, but, it, but this is not that similar, but somewhat similar. Um, maybe, okay, that's a, I, that's flattery, but uh, yeah, maybe, I mean, I, yeah, I, in my dreams. <laughs> yeah, I, well. But we're just doing, I mean, we weren't trying to make this record, but what I mean is that, you know, that's, uh, yeah, we, we try to make the best record that we can course, with what yeah, we're course. doing, and the mood, the vibe, I mean, the whole Saval thing is much more an exploration into kind of uh, interpersonal and, and uh, sad uh, relationship issues. But anyway, um, yeah, the Saval record is a is an interstitial record, and this is an interstitial record. So. Yeah. Totally wrong by this Mingus, yeah. That's right. Yeah, the yeah, tune yeah. is Mingus. Yeah. The tune is a, is called Mingus. What? No, no. The tune. I mean, is a Mingus composition, but it's also his. Uh, he's playing. No. Really? Because I was like, I don't know this record, but it just like totally sounded like Mingus. But I, I, if you told me that was Mingus playing bass, I'd also be like, oh yeah. Well, yeah. Bass playing here is not too. Too far from what he might have done. You'll, you'll but it's it. weird because uh, this is more like the harmonies. They're, he's not, they're not playing the melody that you normally associate with this tune yet. It's more redacted. A re, re, uh, yeah. It's a little bit of a re, reduction of... Well, Let me listen. Yeah. my Derek Bailey joke. Wow, what a great trumpet player. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I don't know who it is. Yeah, it's so it's a it's a Joe McPhee group. Oh really? Yeah. It's from 81 in Switzerland. I mean, I don't know a lot about it. What's it called? Uh, it's called Joe McPhee's Poe Music. Poe Music, yeah, but that's a, that's a long-running... Yeah, maybe different people. Thing. Who's playing Barry, then? Uh, yeah, I, I, it's not somebody I know. Um, Daniel Borquin. Borquin? I don't know him. They're mostly French-sounding names, so I assume they're Swiss or French. Um, Radu Mafadi is the only one I knew beforehand. It doesn't shock me that it's Joe, but I don't, yeah, I don't know this record, and I haven't really heard, like, anything that made me think, oh, that. That's right in my body, I guess. Yeah, you're right. Trumpet. For a moment, I was like, but then I was like, no, 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 it's not like You thought that was Joe on the trumpet? No, he, play, he plays a valve trombone. Oh, I didn't know that. plays valve trombone. And then I was like, no, 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 no. It was interesting. There was that period sh shortly into the piece, like a minute and a half, where there was a little electronic. Yeah, yeah, giveaway. Yeah, that was. But then it's gone away. It was it was remarkable to me that moment when that started. It was like, okay, this is definitely more. Uh, 
open-eared, open-minded band than yeah. a lot of, because the way that everybody else was playing, usually if somebody started doing that, they'd all stop saying, what the fuck is wrong with your shit, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Said it's like, well, we're playing, and there's this scritchy, scritchy, weird yeah, electronic yeah, yeah. thing. With, right. And it might have been Joe with his mess, as he calls it, his mobile his electronic system. Or, oh, I didn't know. <laughs> which is what? Whatever electronic toys that he has at his uh, disposal at the time. Yes. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. How did you end up starting playing with Joe? Oh, in the Tentec. Oh, yeah. I, I knew his music in the 80s, but, uh, but I um, wouldn't have necessarily uh, tracked him down and said, hey, I want to play with you. Yeah. Even though I should have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, no, what happened was that uh, Ken uh, played um, a piece of Joe's on a festival. Victoriaville, I think, and Joe heard it, and at that point, I think that was the only time Joe had ever heard anybody play something he had written <laughs> that he wasn't in the band of. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so he became friends with Ken, and then Ken and Kessler and him made a trio record out here, and then uh, and then he came back probably to play another gig with them, and that was when we were doing we had started the Brosman Octet, and then for the next gig was on the. Bottle Festival and Mots and Joe were in what town. Ninety-seven or ninety-eight. So Joe and Mots were in town for the festival. Also, I'm gonna say, I'm gonna say Mats Gustafsson just because you know theoretically oh, yeah. there could be somebody listening Mats that she doesn't know. <laughs> so by, um, by their anyway, so they were in town, and then uh, it wasn't my decision, but it, I definitely wasn't complaining or anything. But it was like, why don't we add those guys to the band? And I yeah. have to say that. That was, I, I knew Joe and liked Joe's music, but that's when I fell in love with Joe. Oh yeah, yeah You know, nice. he brought a kind of note of, in those days we were playing compositions too, it wasn't like free, yeah. free improvised, yeah. we had charts, but still yeah. he brought this kind of thoughtfulness and calm to the band that nobody else, the rest of us were all kind of like, let's go crazy! Yeah, Whoa, think? we're crazy, we're crazy motherfuckers, and Peter Brosman's the craziest motherfucker ever, and we're gonna do the best that we can to be as crazy as he is. Right, right, And then right, Joe right, came right. in and he was like thoughtful, and 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 restrained, yeah, yeah, yeah. and had this sort of bubble of kind of a peaceful energy around him that rubbed off on the band, and made the band, to me, so much deeper than would have been otherwise. Yeah. You think that's because he's the same basic generation as Bretzman? Partly because they're around the same age, but just because his whole vibe and, and history and musical experiences are entirely different in ways than Peter, you know? Mm -hmm. And he's, I don't know if he still is, he was on the board of the Pauline Oliveras Foundation for years, you know? Oh, really? He's like, he's friends with that whole other kind of improvising where you take off your shoes and sit on the carpet and listen to the stream go by and uh -huh. make little tiny sounds, you know? Right, right, right. And which I can relate to and we even had a band around that time that was much more in that, you know, this band Pillow with uh, uh -huh. Liz Payne, Ben Vida and Michael Culligan and we were all about, we were like quiet as the new loud. Oh, cool. Yeah, know? yeah, yeah. And so it was, and, and I had already been interested in sort of intense, you can ask Braxton, I would talk a lot about sort of intensity and the quiet space and you know. So, but having somebody in the band who really represented it and wasn't gonna budge from it, mm -hmm. kind of wasn't just an effect on me, it seemed to have an effect on everybody and just changed the band in this magical way. Nice, yeah. Cause it's certainly having right. like eight, 10 people 
not to mention eight or ten people who are like signed up because they want to like blow away Peter Brotsman. You could easily... blow whip at least, yeah. So, yeah. So and we had these two really great crazy drummers, and <coughs> um, but uh, but you know, but for the first few years it was just great that he was in the band and I was happy and I liked hanging out with him and talking to him, but. But uh, it wasn't until I think about five years into the band that then he asked me and Michael if we wanted to do a trio project. I'll be forever grateful for that. Oh, and I'm so glad that that's continued all these years. Well, I only learned from researching this that uh, that was that the first survival unit is just him and his like living yeah. system or whatever it is. Right. Yeah. Well, um, that was even that wasn't the mobile electronic. That was him in a boombox that he had re-recorded stuff. He had like a. He had made a backing. He was basically doing like you know homemade karaoke. The the rest of the guys couldn't do the gig or something. And he said screw it. So he recorded a bunch of stuff and he just showed up with his tape deck and nice. himself and he played. Is this very new? Nope. Yeah, I, I know a lot of people who've done the sort of close miking of uh, saxophone and the key clicks and the resonance stuff. Yeah. I don't know this particular track and like the the sort of overlay of what seems uh, like either either it's I I can't imagine that that's all done live. Either it's multi-tracking or be, yeah. or else there's some sort of uh, either live electronic uh, looping or but also I mean some of the the higher sounds sound like feedback resonance so they could be just generated also by getting so close on the mic that the mic is feeding back to and controlling how much that um it's john butcher yeah yeah um and it might actually all be one live take really i don't, I don't know a I, live I don't take know. with with loops or something i just assumed you couldn't possibly do that but i mean hey you, you know the guy yeah yeah no I, it's definitely it's definitely not like loop uh, in that sort of loop 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 de loop sense but yeah. it could be it could be that he did a couple of passes but now that I think about it and and everything um, he might be just really able to ride that feedback level just to the point where it seems like it's sort of flowing on its own well so yeah I, I don't know you'd have to ask him but uh, yeah it's funny because because when you first started it it was like yeah it could be Butcher but then uh, a good friend of mine who I play with a lot just recently uh, I, I, I went to a concert of his where he was using electronics but also saxophone with the microphone and the bell and mm -hmm. and, uh, and everything what who are you talking about um, Aram Shelton okay. and it didn't in for a second I was like oh wait that's when I asked you is this new I was like is, oh, this, yeah. is this from Aram because I don't know the record but then it was like when you said no and I was like yeah yeah I don't think it's him anyway but um, mm. but you know it's a, there's a nice history of that somebody should educate me about more of it because I'm sure that since I know a few there must be a lot and it might be an interesting survey of saxophone yeah. key clicking, popping, because I like it. I like it even when it's not like this, where he's like on the microphone. I think 
when I've seen him do this, uh, you know, he's using like a guitar amp a lot of times, and it might oh, yeah. plug right into the amp, and uh, and that's why it was like he can really control the feedback thing in a different way than if it was like a studio or just a microphone. But uh, um, I'll go to the next one. I, we just listened to that a bunch of times in a row because it's only like I thought. I was than, wondering. You said it was really short, and then I was like, it also long, seems so like I'm getting skip. a lot of the information back. And that, what, I, what I said about you know sometimes there's loops that you don't even realize that are longer loops. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, longer loops. You just you know, the same tune. That, yeah, you know, did. you could even put it back to back in the same piece. That hey, this is the same exact minute three times, but yeah. because it's so kind of active and dense that you need to hear. You know, that's what they would do a lot of times with uh, with the really short uh, serialist pieces was play them immediately several times in a row right, <laughs> in right, a concert right. just because there's so there's too much to absorb for anybody. That's just like a bewildering you know parade of strange sounds and then it's over and then like the second time it starts, starts like cage sense. says you know everything becomes a melody if you listen to it long enough you know right right <laughs> so anyway all right moving on to something totally different It's uh, Fred Anderson and um, Marianne Schweitzer. Oh, no. <laughs> Why did I make Fred Anderson? Uh, it's uh, Parker and Drake. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I kind of knew that, but then when the Shalm came in, it was like, oh, yeah, of course. But uh, what? this record, Shalm? what? Well, whatever that thing is. Oh. Or that is, what is that? I mean. It's I, still. Yeah. Wait, no. Oh, that's, that's. Rolfman. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For a second, actually when he first started to play it really sounded more like a, like a Some like a different kind of instrument. Okay. But um, um yeah, so it's not the record I was thinking because that was the confusion for me was that I thought it was a duo record of theirs oh, that yeah, I yeah. heard once. Oh yeah. And it yeah, didn't yeah. sound really anything like that, but right, I recognized right. they're playing and I was like, "Yeah, maybe this is a different track from that record or something." Right, and, then, right, right, right. and then when the when the horn came in for a moment because I was still in like it's their duo record I was like yeah. oh that's oh, William because William plays this kind of weird shawm sometimes and okay. it was like sure, 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 sure. and I was like oh yeah but yeah, but yeah. I was already you know sort of like it's them anyway I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hamid has such a really not not I mean he has a huge vocabulary but he has such an identifiable yeah what would you vocabulary William was a little bit less because there's so many people who rip off or I shouldn't say rip off there's so many people who are really heavily influenced by William that if you hear it could have been Hamid and several other friends of mine who were excellent bass players but but it was definitely not it was definitely Hamid (laughs) what what, what is the how would you articulate what's the thing that makes you know it's Hamid It's like, how do you know the voice of, you know, your next door neighbor when you yeah. hear them out the window? You're just like, that's them, you know? It's yeah, like, fair they have that sound. He has a particular authority on the drums. Yeah. Or he, he can do things that almost nobody else can do. Or most people would just sound bad doing them. Like? Just certain kind of like, do, do, do. You know that that 
somehow really like it's just it's we're talking nanoseconds that it yeah. feels really right but it'd be so easy to play that same thing and have it feel really just terrible Right, 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 right. You know what I mean? Yeah, sure. And he has a unique, he has a special touch, I think. You know, just, you know, it's a thing about amplified instruments that we can't really, we can have a touch, but, but with really a totally acoustic instrument when it's just your hand and a stick and a membrane, mm -hmm. or, uh, or even like with saxophones and things like that, then it's a whole other set of things. But with drums and piano, touch you know the same two people I, I've heard concerts with two different piano players playing the same piano with the same sound guy on the same stage and everything and and one plays the concert and the next person sits down and plays like one note and you know right away that's yeah, yeah. another player right, right you know sure, in, sure, a, sure. in a great way and it's the same with like really good drummers that you know they the way their wrist and their hand works and the way they bounce the stick off the drum is just is a signature right there. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, Not yeah. that I could tell Hamid from one snare drum hit or something like right, that. Right, 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 right. That, that, that would be, pretty, then I would, be I would be really inside of yeah, yeah, yeah. a world that, that <laughs> you know, that I don't need to be that deeply inside of. So. Yeah, yeah. But um, yeah, he's got a unique set of phrase. He has a phraseology that's, and a, and a timbre that's his own, yeah. His own, yeah. yeah. I'm uh, question for you about so so this Tushinari Kondo this is Dialogue Dog uh, the group um, and that's Kondo playing um, trumpet obviously through effects through effects through effects through effects through effects through effects if you if you were to see this show or something like this would you would you like check out his gear and think like what should I should I steal some of those moves should I buy any pedal like uh, you know I'm I'm not the the brightest bulb in the bunch the sharpest tack in the drawer you know right right but it's funny because no I I saw this quartet play several times and I have to say that in terms of audio fidelity that that band had this special magical sound, you know, again, sort of at the same festival with 10 other bands on the same stage with the same sound guy, and somehow this band would sound so much more clear and well-defined and hi-fi you know, than the other bands on the festival, you know, which would have a lot of Let's take really good bands, but I'm just saying, you know, I saw them off festival too, but you know, and when you when you have this parade of people in the same environment and one of them sounds so much better than everybody else, you kinda of wonder about it. And I really admire Kondo's control of his electronics mm -hmm. and uh, and the choices that he makes and the way that he just plays and he's he's great. Yeah. And I got to play with him, you know, because he, he was a guest with the Tentet for a tour. Okay. Stonewater, I think the second Tentet record he's on, and uh, and uh, we played. He played with us some in Europe too, and, and I've seen him in a bunch of other contexts and everything. And I've always really loved what he does. And I'm honestly almost embarrassed, maybe, that I never went up after the gig and looked to see what was in his rack. <laughs> why? Why is that embarrassing? Well, because I probably should have, just to see, because I really liked what he did, and, you know, at least just to have a sense. So what, what is he using there? 
Yeah. But in my defense, on the other hand, there's a couple of reasons why I wouldn't care that much. Is that a I can tell a lot of times what the effect is that he's using mm-hmm. without having to see it and to see what which particular uh, brand of device is yeah, making sure, that sure, effect. Sure. And also, I wasn't interested at all, and I've never been interested in lugging around a rack of right. gear. And so, and he always carried, he only had a trumpet, so he could carry a, like a, literally one of those black cube road cases with, you know, six rack mounted effects in it, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, um, and I did, I wasn't going to do that no matter what. So even if I went to look, it would be purely for intellectual uh, reasons rather than practical ones. And, um, and then also, uh, you know, he was using a, um, a microphone, not a pickup, as far as I know. I don't think he used, a, like, one of those Marcus Berry where they drill into a mouthpiece. I think he yeah. just had a little clip-on mic on his thing. And then processing, that's more like processing vocals. Yeah. And, and I was always more interested in, like, processing guitars. Right. right. You know, and thinking of the cello as a kind of a guitar. Right. In a right. way, rather than as a voice. And... And so the kinds of effects that would work on the trumpet wouldn't necessarily be that interesting to me on the cello. But so there's a, a variety of reasons why. And also, I can use my ears, and even if I'm wrong, my imagination can tell me at least that, oh, this is that, or this is this. And, um, and you know, it's interesting that band also was very good with... Um, with um, oh, what's his name? Oh, blanking. Jazzheimer's, they call it, uh, you know, um, Roy Campbell. Jazzheimer's. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> do you play this tune? Like, you play when you're... How, how, what's the deal with you being in this band? Were you actually in the band or you just played with them? Uh, yeah, you know, um, uh, no, I was never in the band, but I don't think anybody was really, anybody who thought they were in the band was in for a, 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 a little bit of heartbreak when they realized they weren't in the band. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, but when I started playing with them, they had already been around for a while, and I always viewed myself, or I viewed the band as being Sharon and Craig. You can turn it off. I would, I, um, I'm not on this record for sure, and I don't recall either we ever even played that particular song um, tour. But uh, but anyway, uh, no, I, I they started while I was still in grad school. And then I moved back to New York, and Craig at that point was working at a record store, Beaker Bob's, I think. Okay. I don't know. Anyway, and he had gotten a copy of a seven inch that I put out when I was living in California that was pretty scrunky, punky, yeah. noisy. Um, and he liked it enough to sort of start talking to me on the street. We lived in the same neighborhood. And Where is this? Neighborhood? In, but I moved back to New York after grad school. Yeah, what neighborhood? I'm oh, oh, this was the days when people still could afford to live in the Lower East Side. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's what I would have guessed, but this is like so, mid, mid, late 80s? No, actually, well, you know, it was getting rough then, but uh, I, I got lucky, but uh, it was early 90s. Early 90s. But um, they would make records, and if I wasn't doing anything else, and it was down at Don Fury's studio on uh, in Little Italy, which was close by, and uh, and... 
go over and make some noise. Make some noise. Make some noise. I was interested in partly just as another instance of what we were talking about earlier about um, pop songs. I mean, you know, punk. If you think of punk as within the larger umbrella of pop, in it, which it is in a certain sense. Um, totally. Um, employing improvisers mm-hmm. uh, I mean literally employing but also just like making use of yeah, yeah, or even mean. improvising yeah. technique even if yeah. you know like intentionally being scrunched sure. or whatever so it's definitely an example of that yeah and actually that's the thing is that they they, they were kind of billed sometimes we would be billed when I was with them at least as punk jazz from New uh-huh. York yeah. Um, but yeah it's funny they say that though because like you know the history of sidemen for pop groups having interests in jazz or improvised music or other less popular forms of music is yeah. long and rich. Yeah, you know? sure, sure, sure. Um, but often when they would get into that situation, then then that was when they put on their professional hat and they, you know, and myself included. You know, a lot yeah. of times I, I would do recording sessions where for me it was much more uh, of like um, using using a certain particular set of skills and trying to you know, like be meticulous and clean and stuff that I never had to think about in jazz or improvised music, you know, mm-hmm. and really sort of what Feldman would call the new virtuosity, which was playing the right note at the right time. <laughs> and, you know, right, right, right. And so it's like, you know, yeah, I'm not here to be crazy. If you want me to, I'll take a pass at being crazy, you know, yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Uh, but if you just want me to play in tune and in time and play the melody that you have in mind or something like it or embellish it or accompany the singer you know i'm perfectly happy to do that and i take pride in being able to do that and i enjoy doing that but yeah but god is my co-pilot was definitely bringing in improvisers not to not as employing them to give them work in exchange for them uh pairing back their um their skills to the essentials but instead employing them as uh as people who uh, bring a whole other vocabulary to punk which is a form of pop music i always felt to my own. yeah 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 for sure i mean i guess yeah because more recently i'm aware of you played on the on riley walker's record which yeah. i guess is probably more of is that more of an instance of the former type of employing or no that was a little bit more interstitial or something because uh uh you know it was like it wasn't it's not free improvising but it was pretty much improvised you know yeah. he just played and sang and then the violin player who I had never met and have never met since but was very good mm-hmm. and I, I wouldn't mind playing with her again but uh, oh, Whitney? The, Whitney exactly yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I never she's a really interesting person really yeah. interesting she's uh, she's a scholar in addition to a musician but we just basically did a couple passes where we just played what we thought you know made sense at the time and it's very loose and um, and and I like it but it's uh, it's not quite what I'm talking about where it's really like you know I'm going chung chaka chung chaka 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 you know what I mean you know yeah, that's yeah. the arrangement or I did I wrote a lot of arrangements for um, uh, we had a kind of a little production house going at what's shape shop now but used to be called uh, truck stop and um, and Michael Krasner would sort of produce engineer for bands and it was all kinds of people from Simon Joyner to Parker Paul I mean, you probably don't know any of these names but, I know them Simon Joyner but yeah mm-hmm. Simon but uh, he was one of the bigger stars but a lot of bands or singers would come into Krasner and want to make a record and then they'd say oh it'd be great to have strings or horns on this or that track and then they hire me and I'd write charts and then we'd bring in 
so so and that was again sort of the thing where like my friends who were avant-garde geniuses you know but come in and just play you know those three quarter notes and on time and the yeah, right, yeah, yeah. and in tune please yeah, yeah, you know yeah. or as in tune as you can and you know and so you know so um so that's more what i was talking about and like with riley you know there's a little lot of, a lot of like uh, room for a lot of margin for schmear and uh, and uh, and slight uh, bit of uh, dysfunctionality and uh, I, I like it. I was I I'm, I think I've already told him and I've told other people for sure. <laughs> it's not a secret, but I was a little disappointed that he only wanted to do these kind of acoustic, uh, sensitive songs with uh, me and Whitney because because uh, I love the guys in that band and I love playing with them and I've played in more kind of in situations with them and I was hoping that I was coming in to do some electric cello freak out rocking with the guys and instead I get there and it's uh, these are going to be the the um, palate cleanser sort of uh, sensitive uh, almost British folk songs uh-huh. of the record well, <laughs> and it's like okay you know I'm your friend and I'll do it but you know yeah, yeah, but yeah. I was hoping that we were going to rock out so. <laughs> Aside from names, I could ask whether you think this is, uh, I'm curious if it's, I know you're not a violin player, but like if you can, if there's something that gives away whether this is uh, somebody who, from the art school side of the tracks or the, uh, the Appalachian I think something tracks. from the art school, arty, more arty side of the tracks, definitely. I'm, I'm kind of thinking it's, uh, oh, what's his name, but it's it's not as cheesy as, I shouldn't say that, but... <laughs> What's his name with all the like like the electric ragas and everything and he also does some folk fiddle yeah, Henry Flint. Henry Flint. Yeah, this is Henry, Henry Flint. Yeah, Henry Flint. Yeah, I kinda thought it was Henry Flint, but then I don't know this record. And some of the other ones, while I appreciate them for documents from when they were from, they yeah. they sound really, really dated. And this doesn't sound as dated to me. Yeah. yeah. You know. Um even though it's actually in some ways older, more traditional, older sounding than right. the stuff that sounds dated, but right, you know what right, I'm saying. For sure, yeah, yeah, but yeah. you know, you can definitely hear that uh, he's got a little bit of uh, he's, uh, he's been, yeah, you know, it's uh, it's a very sophisticated and and at the same time slightly technologically or technically flawed. You know, the real guys who play this would never make the little tiny mistakes that were in there. It's just little things about his memory. Yeah, little things about the performance where it's like, yeah, that, that guy would not actually cut it in that world. In like, in, in like a dance. <laughs> right. Or or just at the, at, the, at the cookout, you know. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. he, you know, it just, they wouldn't, they wouldn't put up, they'd be like, man, go back and practice some more before you come back with this shit. You know, and that's part of the reason that I knew it wasn't, um like authentic almost right, right away yeah, yeah. and then also just how sort of serial like almost Feldman-esque in a way the you know like these different images <laughs> yeah. juxtaposed rather than a more continuous the real guys also would stick with one thing yeah, yeah. and then finally wrap it up and then start a new thing as a separate now this moment stop giving me a you know that I mean but uh, so yeah it was it was a it was yeah. But I kind of guess it was Flint, but I didn't know that particular one. So yeah, it's a, one of a few where he does. He goes relatively straight, but acoustic it's, it's and yeah, yeah, yeah. But, uh, and it's good. It's really good. I can't get it. Back. So. <laughs> 
I'm not saying like, man, the guy sucks, but you know, but I've heard the other guys who. Yeah, yeah, it is kind of funny. They have disdain for me too. Sure, sure. Play, play some box set ensemble for a serious kind of bluegrass folk uh, country musician, and they're like, what the hell is this? You know, sorry. Oh, I was just thinking it's interesting that, that, that getting to do that counts as being making avant-garde music, like basically just like <laughs> ripping off. I mean, I really like that tune, yeah. so I mean, it's like... It's, yeah. did, and What's yet, the name of the tune? Uh, it's called White Lightning. Okay. Uh, it's one, one it's, I mean, it's all from these Locust Records. Yeah, you know, they're I not even issues, well, like the, they're issues. Yeah, they're they issues, never, yeah. They were never yeah the ones that I have are Locust also. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, it's funny. I mean, well, but, you know, then there's that guy in New York right now, has uh, a Gagosian gallery with the Instagram pictures taken by other people that he's printing oh, and he's yeah, selling yeah, yeah. for $100,000 a piece or whatever. Right, so, right, yeah, you know, it's art because an artist has made it art. And, you know, before that, it was just stuff. Yeah, yeah, which is also they, ironic. Uh, Non-artists made, so it's not art. Sorry. Oh, just because Henry Flynn had this whole, as I understand, I've read it, but a lot of these these anti-art diatribes right. and picketed and all this sort of stuff. Yeah, so, yeah. but yeah, he's. But that he's, was an art event in and of itself, of picketing yeah. MoMA. Yeah, you know? yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, because he's an artist, then it makes a different thing than if he was just the like, bus driver standing in front, you know, picketing MoMA. <laughs> yeah, right, 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 right. right. Uh, it's Leroy. No? Yep. Billy Bang? What's that? No. Billy Bang? Nope. Whoa! Really sounded like Leroy, and then I was like, but because some Billy records can be more like, usually not, but... It's not Leroy. I promise. Oh, this <laughs> Ornette. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's funny because I didn't think you would play that for me, and uh, and also um, this is less, this is more, this is less exciting than some of the. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And the thing that I liked about Ornette's violin playing wasn't even so much anyway his playing, but the way that the band played when he played violin. Huh. You know, there's like it changed. It changed the whole spectrum. This doesn't seem as much like. This seems more like like Leroy playing with with the rhythm section, you right. know, sure. and, which is great. And I would be happy to listen to it and go to the concert and you know and everything. But there were times uh, on those records where everything is kind of going more traditional, and then Ornette pulls up the violin, and it feels like everybody has to scramble for right. like some other Run way to deal yeah. and it seems like they're pretty comfortable with him and yeah, he seems yeah, yeah. more well that's interesting because this is as far as i know i'm pretty i read i mean as far this as really from what really i read one? online this is the first recorded instance that's him on trumpet of course um the first instance recorded or, or okay. like released of yeah. him playing violin so maybe they didn't yet know to change <laughs> or yeah, or maybe, I mean, they had been playing together a bunch before they made that record. Because um, yeah. what I'm talking about is like these uh, live things where the band just doesn't, maybe hasn't been prepped and yeah. they haven't spent a couple days together. Yeah. 
playing with him yeah. playing violin, you yeah. know, so it's a little bit more like, yeah, he's playing trumpet, he's playing saxophone, it's all great. <laughs> what the hell is he yeah, doing? Yeah, 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 yeah. I don't know. Yeah, he, I don't he, know. he leads up here. This is yeah. Live of the Golden Circle. Uh, right. so. A record I don't have. Yeah, with, yeah, you said you didn't have any of them. So, I mean, obviously, I've, you already mentioned Ornette playing uh, violin, so this isn't new to this uh, this particular thing, this interview, but, uh, but I... I, you did. I thought of this, of course, because in the wake of Ornette's death, you you said yeah, yeah, your was, favorite I, violin player. Yeah, I, I, and I made favorite violin. I mean, player. yeah, I just wanted course. to put that violin part in there, you know, because mm-hmm. everybody else is all like wrapped up in the sax and everything. Yeah, 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 yeah. And you know, in that classic free jazz stuff. And I was like, man, but you know, like, I love this violin yeah. playing. What do you? I mean, no, obviously there you're. They're and I love Leroy's playing too. But. Yeah. <laughs> right. And they, they're not, it's not like Leroy was uh, at all like beholden or indebted to Ornette, but they have certain things in common. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What do you, um, I guess, from a technical perspective or like in it, or even just sort of a field perspective, like if, do you find some sort of inspiration, like a specific thing that you kind of want to borrow or be inspired by in this plane? I mean, now we got the trumpet again. Yeah, no, I know, I know what you mean. I, 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 I'm in the violin playing. Like I said, it's, well, you know, here, the thing is, for me, is, uh, like I said, it wasn't even necessarily about what his technical mastery, like, of the violin was. It was the effect that it had on the band. Yeah. And I didn't even mean necessarily always that that they didn't know what to do, but that they had to listen differently and interrelate, relate differently. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, um, and so if there's any, rather than saying, like, there's a, a riff or a lick that he does. Yeah. It's more, because for me, you know, a lot of times I feel like my job in the band also is, even if I'm not playing, I'm there, and it's how I listen and the impact that, you know, sort of a Heisenbergian, just by being uh, in the same space with other people, they affect me and I affect them, and we are, we're affecting each other even when we're not playing. Sure. And uh, and that's a lot of our job is not to just play great shit, but to be in the sphere of influence of other people, and that together we listen and play something better than we can individually imagine. The um, the Lightbox project, you know, my job I'm more I'm more of an editor and a and a central organizational figure, but. But I'm also the listener, you know? I'm like the number one listener. I'm the listener with the power. You know, they talk about sort of the African tribes that like some sort of person in the the non-musicians would have a drum. And when the music was really good, they would play the drum, you know? Right. And that was sort of a, anyway, and it's kind of like, you know, that person had this job in the band, which wasn't to play music, but was to be the listener, Yeah. you know? And so like in the light box, I'm trying to be, the listener, and even when I'm playing the cello, I'm trying to be the listener as much as the cello player. And uh, and so that's a more influential thing about his violin playing, as I understand it, understood it, was that that everybody's listening changed. Right. But, you know, yeah, no, it's, it's hardly like I'm like, oh my God, he was such a, he was amazing, you should hear him play the, you know, whatever, yeah, yeah, you know. Yeah. He can play the hell out of White Lightning, yeah. And Flint should just be ashamed that he can't play White Lightning. I mean, because like you know, yeah, yeah, I, yeah, Ornette yeah. had the good sense not to try to do that. Yeah, 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 <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, right, right, right. You know, but 
and I'm sure he couldn't. I'm sure it's not like a thing where you know, oh, he uh, he was a master of the violin, and then he decided that he the only way to play was, you know. Yeah, yeah, you know? for sure. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, and he himself said, you know, it's like the great thing about the violin is he's got this thing that he doesn't know how to play. Right. Right. So. Well, I wonder also. I mean, I've seen you played with people who are self-taught at things, and it seems like sometimes that's liberating in the obvious way because you get to. Um, uh, you get to uh, explore, you know, avenues without any kind of preconceptions that are created by the sort of idiomatic way you've been taught. But on the other hand, there's a sort of like limitation to just wanting to freak out in this one way. Like you've seen plenty of people do kind of like noise sets on an instrument they don't know how to play, and it doesn't feel fully intentional. Yeah, sometimes. yeah. Sometimes. There's different kinds of self-taught people. You know, I yeah. mean, there's some who, yeah, or like they just got an instrument and they made some noise and that's their thing and, they, and it sort of, they stunt their growth at a certain point and they just do that thing. Fortunately, we don't really have to see them too often because usually they sort of stunt their growth out of any kind of uh, interaction <laughs> with other people. So, um, but then there are the really kind of intelligent self-taught people who pursue information from the instrument and from the musicians around them and from listening and some of them are... They, they never took a lesson on saxophone in their life, but they've listened to millions of hours of music, and they and they understood more about it than just that those guys are making sounds, and I'm making sounds too, so I must be like them. They, you know, they they really self-taught, not not just like a savage. Right, right, right. They're still teaching involved. Right, it's just a self-teaching. Yeah, and um, the funny thing is that most of those people, most people who go to school are self-taught in a way too right yeah you know they just they took that self-teaching to another level where they institutionalized it mm -hmm. you know but really you're just because you're in school and you got teachers you could still not learn anything yeah you're still teaching yourself and you're learning from your colleagues and you're absorbing information and maybe there's a little bit more structure and then the really stupid ones get so invested in whatever they're being taught that they can't see anything outside of that yeah so there's like all these different, there's a spectrum from really stupid taught people to really stupid self-taught or non-taught people. And then there's this whole gray spectrum in between of what did you learn where and from who and how and how much of it is from the streets and hard knocks and how much of it is from a book and how much of it is from lunchtime conversations with your classmates and how much of it is from your parallel interest in macroeconomics, you know, whatever. Right, right, you know, right. So, sure. you know, so I, I with self-taught even, I try not to Speaking use that word. We're all self, well, yeah, or, yeah, yeah, exactly. But uh, with self-taught, I mean, we're all kind of self-taught, I think, or, you know, or have, have a deep enough relationship and commitment to the art that we want to learn as much as we can and grow in it. And so, you're, you're learning, you can't learn all that just sitting in an empty room, you know. The experiment where they like took children and they, uh, and they uh, wanted to see what the 
natural language of humans was, so they locked them in rooms by themselves for years. Right. You know, and they went work, back, yeah. you know, the, the infant, and like the thing was, there was just food slid under the door every day or something, and come back and find out what they speak. And, you yeah. know, they, they, I think there's uh, Russians, and they were doing this, and I think they had them all off in the Ukraine somewhere, and then they decided that the original language was some sort of pigeon Ukraine. And it turned out because the families <laughs> no felt sorry for the, well, the, the families felt sorry for the kids, so they would, when nobody was around, they'd go and talk to them, you know? Right. So anyway, so, I mean, you know, you don't, you can't self-teach yourself a language language and you can't self-teach yourself music if I left you in a room when you're two years old with an endless supply of food and a saxophone I wouldn't come back 15 years later and find a saxophone player yeah I'd find somebody who maybe took the part the saxophone and used it to claw to scratch holes in the wall yeah, or something you know? or maybe maybe one in a million might come back and they'd be doing something magical but maybe otherwise they would have sort of figured out well you can blow in this end and you can wiggle your fingers here and it does something and yeah. they probably wouldn't have invented uh, much of anything beyond that so right so there's no self-taught nobody yeah it seems like that, that just means it's a pride thing i didn't go to conservatory you know yeah, yeah, i yeah. can't play a scale on my instrument because i'm a badass you know? yeah yeah it seems like a sort of right. like almost like a libertarian fantasy of like i'm going to attain the true freedom right right over exactly here. Like if, if you could just get rid of like cops taxes and laws then i could just become right. like the real essence right. of myself or right. something exactly. as though exactly everything isn't actually interconnected all the time exactly so so that's i don't know but but it is possible to be a very highly developed musician on one instrument and then purposely pick up another instrument because you enjoy um the 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 experience of having something that's alien to you